0: Hello and welcome to the David Eagle Podcast. We're looking back at 2016, a year that saw me release a podcast every single day for that year in a project called David's Daily Digital Dollop. In order to streamline things so that we don't have 366 podcasts just for 2016, I have condensed them into these weekly omnibus editions. And we are entering week 11. We're in March... We've left England, and we're in Australia, where I would be for the next three weeks on tour with my folk band, The Young'uns. Just a little warning about the quality. I'm not talking about the quality of the content. There's nothing wrong with that, my friends. I'm talking about the audio quality. I was recording these in various locations, undesirable locations, such as hotel bathrooms that were quite echoey, and I needed to record quite quickly because it was a very busy schedule, and I just had to grab any opportunity that I could record in that I possibly could. So unfortunately, the audio quality can be a bit undesirable at times, but hopefully you can look past that. I'm sure you can. Once you start hearing the content, you're like, normally I would switch off with reverberant spaces like this and the sound of the microphone distorting. But no, I forgive David all of that because the quality is absolutely impeccable. You should write when you're jet lagged more often, David. Anyway, when you hear this sound, it means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. Listeners to yesterday's audio dollop will already know that there was no anal cavity search. But fear not, Chloe, the journey is not yet over. There's always Australian customs. In fact, I don't think I'd mind an Australian anal cavity search as much. Every single Australian person that I've spoken to so far over the last 24 hours has been delightfully friendly and very easygoing, and so I might find the experience a little less disconcerting than an English probe. You see, you are being to me gets you. All you have to do is be friendly towards me, and you're already one step closer to me voluntarily parting my buttocks for you. Unfortunately, Jules, you've rather messed up in that regard, and so there'll be no arse fingering for you. I bet you're ruining the day now, Jules. I am writing this at 9am British time, and I'm currently on the plane. I got on the plane, signed my seat, and immediately put my seatbelt on, only to be asked by one of the stewards to please take it off, as they were currently in the process of refueling. I have no idea why me having my seatbelt on would impact on the refueling process. I could have asked for a reason, but it was the start of a long flight and the stewards were busy moving through the plane, and so I uh, just decided to accept the request. What's that all about? If anyone knows, feel free to leave a comment and educate me. I might even bump you up the list of arse fingerers as a way of saying thanks. Before you take off, you are asked to listen and watch a very important safe Video which describes what to do in the event of an emergency, which apparently doesn't include exiting with your laptop and recording equipment so that you can eject the plane and produce a dollop from the middle of the ocean. You get told this information is of paramount importance and to give it your full attention. You were told how to brace, how to inflate. I mean, how to inflate your life jacket. I've just written how to inflate, but I assume the readers, I know they're not as clever as you listeners, but I'm sure they would probably know what I mean by that. Yeah, it is you who I've patronised by explaining it. I do apologise. I'll blame it on the jet Like How to use the oxygen. How to use the oxygen mask. Right, let's correct that. How to use the oxygen. <laughs> Simply Breathe. <laughs> There you go. I've corrected it. Now the breeders won't be confused. How to use the oxygen mask? You are told that it is vitally important that you memorise where your nearest emergency exit is located. They tell you all this, and then you take off. Then mere minutes later, they spend the rest of your flight trying to ply you with alcohol. Dollop 70. My first dollop from down under. Whilst waiting in the customs queue at Melbourne Airport, there was a sign informing us that Channel 7 were currently filming for their airport-based reality TV show. I was a bit concerned that this might mean that the customs staff were going to be even more officious than usual, knowing that they were being filmed. After all, they'd want to be seen doing their jobs properly. I also thought that having a film crew present would mean that some of the staff might decide to act up their role a bit. Surely, having your actions filmed is going to affect your behaviour on some level, with people acting in the way that best suits the person they want to be seen as being. You might decide that you want to be likeable and come across as a kind person, always willing to help. Or maybe you'd like to be viewed as the Joker, ready with a witty line that will find favour with the people watching. Or you might elect to be seen as the hard-nosed, no-nonsense, no-bullshit guy who provides the show with an element of drama and intensity. Hopefully we wouldn't get the latter character. Not because we had anything to hide, but simply because we'd both hardly had any sleep over the last 30 hours and didn't fancy concluding our day with a confrontational encounter by someone who was hamming up their hostility for some saddle on a sofa. Might my international career hang in the balance of an amateur actor attempting to find favour with a film crew and a TV audience? Might I be refused into Australia purely to create the pivotal plot of a humdrum drama? it would have been distressing enough to be refused entry into the country without having the added ignominy of the whole thing being broadcast on TV. Perhaps I needed to see this as an opportunity. Maybe, if I was a compelling enough character, then this could launch me into the hearts and minds of the Australian public. I might have to sell out a bit and exploit my blindness to engender sympathy with the audience. That should help create a compelling story and gain me a considerable bit of airtime. I would have to be alert and at my best, even though I was massively tired and drained and my mind was rather foggy. I'm probably suffering from deep brain thrombosis. Now that's a good line for the TV. I'm going to be a hit in Australia. The audience are going to love this. Channel 7 are going to be so impressed that they give me my own TV show. ''Have you got any grain on you, madam?'' said the lady at customs to the person in front of me at the customs desk. ''Okay, so they're going to ask me about grain,'' I thought. ''Maybe I should prepare a witty one-liner, a clever comedic comeback, to reel the viewers in.'' She'd say, ''Have you got any grain with you, sir?'' And I could say something like, ''Sorry, no. Besides, I thought it was against the rules for you to smoke on duty.'' Would that work? Does that even make sense? I'm too jet-lagged to know. I think it works. I give I said it nonchalantly and really quickly, then the audience would be impressed by my ability to think of jokes quickly. So that's the deep brain thrombosis line, and now the grain comeback. I can keep listening to the conversation in front of me, which might give me some more ideas for jokes. The lady in front of me was a bit confused by the grain question. I don't think English was her first language, and she might have also been a bit deaf. Or oh, the film crew would be loving this, having got a disability angle. They had no idea that. That there was even better to come. They were about to meet their best character yet, the English blind man. Perhaps the film crew would engineer a situation in which me and the deaf lady were detained in a room together, perhaps due to a grain-based complication. The deaf lady didn't seem to understand the question, and I had made a jocular comment which hadn't been taken very well. The scene in which the non-English-speaking deaf woman and the English blind man try and communicate in detention would be one of the most popular moments of Australian TV in 2016, going viral worldwide. I don't know whether the scene with the customs lady and the deaf woman will make it onto the Channel 7 show but just in case you are planning on watching it and don't want any spoilers skip straight ahead to the next paragraph you will just have to put your hands over your ears or something like that it'll probably take me about 20 seconds to deliver this after a bit of confusion where the deaf lady didn't seem to understand the question the customs person named various examples of what she meant by the term grain and the lady then seemed to understand No, no no grain, she replied, and she was allowed to proceed. Presumably, if they do show this scene on the TV, then they will create a bit of a cliffhanger around it, in which the grain story's big conclusion will follow the commercial break. It would be a shame to squander such a moment by not building adequate suspense. Although, sadly, they had missed the opportunity to do the deaf-blind communication scene. Then it was my turn to be interrogated. This was my moment to shine. It was time to introduce the Australian TV audience to David Eagle, the quick-witted English blind man. Good morning, said the customs lady. Good morning, I replied. Not the most memorable or amazing first line, I admit, but wait until she asks me about grain, and i would be ready to deliver comedy gold. I handed my passports to the lady, she scanned it, and then, mere seconds later, she said, that's all fine, you can go through, sir. Apparently, because we'd filled out a number of forms before travelling, all the information that they needed was on their screen. So that was it. No questions about grain. My fleeting hopes of fame and fortune were gone unless there might still be an opportunity to salvage a spot on TV. I could try and shoehorn in my deep brain thrombosis line. Well, uh, thank you. I must say that that's a relief because uh, my, my brain... Good morning, sir. She said to Sean behind me, completely riding roughshod over my attempts to get the deep brain thrombosis joke out. It was useless. She had talked over the start of the joke and completely ruined it. And so I walked away, having been granted admission into Australia, but denied my place on Australian TV. We arrived at the hotel at about 11pm Australian time, 12 noon British time. Sean went straight to bed. I sat on the toilet seat and recorded that day's dollop in the bathroom. The hotel had Wi-Fi, but you had to pay for it. I was planning on going to sleep straight after uploading the dollop, and then we'd be leaving the hotel first thing in the morning, meaning that I'd have to pay for 24 hours of Wi-Fi just in order to use it for 10 minutes. But it had to be done. I imagined all of your frantic and forlorn faces as the realisation dawned on you that there was to be no dollop 69. So I connected to the network. Upon connecting, a message popped up offering a very generous free five minutes of internet, presumably to suck you into buying five minutes was going to be a challenge i had to publish the written version then log into the server to upload the audio version mention the dollops release on facebook and twitter and then edit and upload the rss feed for the podcast providers it was a race against time but i won it with hardly a second to spare so now we're in australia tomorrow we do our first gig Belt up, or feel the pain, was the message written on a road sign which we saw while driving through Melbourne, warning people of the importance of fastening their seatbelts. So, we're only three days into this trip, and already there's been a bit of a hitch. But there's no need for concern. Now worries, as the Australians say, at least twice a minute. It's probably one of the most commonly used phrases in Australia. As we passed the belt up or feel the pain sign, we noticed a hitchhiker at the side of the road. The three of us decided to pull over and see whether we could offer a lift. Sean and Michael's motives were purely altruistic, whereas I made the choice, hoping that it might provide something interesting to write about for the day's dollop. We pulled over and asked her where she was going. She turned out to be going to the same place as us. So she got in our car, thanking us profusely, and we answered her by instructing her to belt up or feel the pain. Unfortunately, it turns out that the roadside slogan isn't particularly common throughout Australia. Panicked, she attempted to escape the car, but the doors have an automatic locking system, and before she could decipher the unlock mechanism, Michael had pulled away and was now speeding down the motorway. We tried to placate her by saying, no worries, but it doesn't sound quite as friendly in a Teesside accent. In fact, it sounded almost sarcastic and threatening. This only heightened her distress. Okay, I might have exaggerated the story a little bit, although I'm sure that you gathered that. Our hitchhiker was 22, originally from Germany, who apparently went by the name Pawnee. We inquired whether that was actually her real name. My real name is Annie but everyone calls me Pony. I assume that everyone called her Pony because she'd asked to be called Pony, unless people just randomly started calling her it, and she decided that life would just be a lot easier if she just went along with it. She seemed to be using the argument that everyone called her Pony as a reason for why she was called Pony, but surely this was an active decision on her part. We asked her why she was called Pony. I used to have a pony when I was a child. Again, this didn't really offer much in the way of illumination. I mean I used to have a train set when I was a child, but I don't call myself it. Okay, train set is two words, so it's not maybe the best example, it doesn't work quite as well. I suppose I could always hyphenate it and be double barreled, which might also have the advantage of bolstering my social status. Although actually I don't think train set eagle would really ingratiate myself with the posh upper class types. It sounds more like a name befitting an experimental jazz musician than an aristocrat. Who could forget Set Eagle's legendary festival gig, in which he spent the first half an hour playing everything out of time? Still, in fairness, he did apologise for the delay, and the performance started to pick up from there, but then Set and his band started miming playing their instruments. And after a couple of minutes of this, the audience started complaining that they couldn't hear anything. Trainset Eagle rebuked the restless crowd, telling them that they were in a designated quiet zone. The gig continued for another five minutes, but then, halfway through, a flailing whistle solo, he stopped the gig and refused to continue because a leaf had fallen onto the stage. That's it. I'm never playing an outdoor festival again. It's just too much of a choo-choo. He gets a bit of a stutter whenever he's angry, hence the repetition of the word choo. You probably thought that there was a tempo. The audience hadn't seen Trainset this angry since someone heckled him for going electric. This was in the 80s and signified a highly controversial move with many of his fans disowning his music. Before that time, his music was always totally run by steam. He grabbed hold of the heckling audience member and hauled him over the coals. Fortunately, the coals weren't remotely hot because he was doing an electric set. In fact, I'm not even sure why he brought the calls on stage with him, probably just out of habit. Trent Set Eagle sarcastically apologised to the audience for any inconvenience caused, and then stormed off the stage. And that was the last time he performed. He became an alcoholic and a drug addict, completely going off the rails, until finally he terminated in London King's Cross, where he'd been living rough on the streets. The band valiantly tried to go on without him, but it didn't last long, and they eventually split in Sheffield, with one half going down to London and the other half going up to York. Well, I was planning on this dollop being principally about the hitchhiker, but i spent most of it going off on a tangential meander about a fictional, aggressive, experimental jazz musician. I must leave this dollop here, as we're now setting off to play our first Australian gig at the Port Fairy Festival. Bonnie, our hitchhiking friend from yesterday's dollop, declared herself to us as a woofer. We started to wonder just what kind of person we would picked up. Was she actually a hitchhiker, or is a woofer the Australian word for a dogger? She'd seen our car and stuck out her thumb, which we assumed to be the universal sign of the hitchhiker. But perhaps in Australia, it's the symbol of the dogger. Actually, that would explain why she kept her seatbelt fastened and smiled so broadly when I told her to belt up or feel the pin. Was everything about to unravel like a chaotic scene in a slapstick comedy? But no, sadly, Chloe, this is not a blog post about dogging. It turns out that a woofer was not a dogger, but a name given to someone who takes part in a scheme called Workers on Organic Farms. It's an initiative that gives backpackers free accommodation on an organic farm, in exchange for a few hours of work on the farm for five days of the week. I'm not sure if the farmer who took Pony on realised that she was a backpacker taking part in the woofer scheme, or maybe he got confused by her name and assumed that she was a pony. After all, he had put a post on the website saying that he was looking for a workhorse for his farm, and then he heard back from the website saying that he could have a pony for free, who would work for five days a week, simply for free accommodation. He was a bit surprised that the pony came with such terms and conditions. Perhaps they'd started up a horse's union now. But it was a free pony, and you couldn't say fairer than that. Maybe this is the real reason that she calls herself poorly in order to dupe hapless farmers into giving her a place to stay for free. Maybe woofing isn't actually a real scheme, but it's just a group of people who con farmers into taking them on by pretending to be farmyard animals. By the time they've realised their mistake, they've already signed the contract. Plus, if these crazy people don't mind living in a stable and helping out on a farm, then maybe it's not such a bad deal after all. Later on in the conversation, we discovered that, while she may have been a woofer, she was certainly not a doofer. A doofer is an Australian word that apparently refers to someone who enjoys going to raves and partying to loud, bass-heavy dance music. The name doofer is due to the kind of music that they listen to, which relates to the sound of the bass going doof, 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 doof. Apparently it makes her ears hurt and feel nauseous. The doof. She can't handle the doof. I know. I can't believe I'm giving this away for free. She was a folk fan volunteering at the Port Fairy Festival which is where we were heading to. We spent the car journey having a lovely conversation about doofers, woofers and also the fact that she was a keen rainbow girl which has nothing to do with the brownies but is a community of people who get together for a month in a forest and live in the wild without electricity or general modern amenities. Cooking and eating vegan food together singing and dancing and sharing stories. She also played a couple of tunes for us my penny whistle it was nice to spend time in the company of someone who was living such an interesting and vastly different sort of life She was a free spirit with no plans And often no idea where she'll be going from one day to the next It's so easy to get pigeonholed and become moulded to a set identity Living the kind of life that you feel is expected of you Doing a predictable job, getting married, seeing the same friends Drinking in the same pubs, eating at the same places It's refreshing to be reminded that this is not necessarily the only way to live life And that it is possible to experience the world for very little Yesterday, we swam in the ocean and walked on the beach. As I walked along the sand, I recalled how I would yearn as a child to go to Australia. The concept that there was a world below my feet was thrilling as a child, as my dad instructed me and my brothers to go and dig as big a hole as we could to see if we could reach Australia. Obviously this was simply a ruse to keep us occupied so that my parents could get some peace, but I was obsessed with the idea of being able to dig a hole deep enough to take me to this exciting magical world called Australia and now here I was walking on the beach but not on English but Australian sand one day I grew up and realized that it wasn't possible to dig a hole to reach Australia at some point in my life the dream fizzled and died as I walked along the beach I remembered all of this and felt a connection with my childhood self and imagined how exciting and happy he would be to know that he had made it If I could only reach into the past and tell him to keep on digging. Obviously, my five-year-old self would hear these words and just keep on slamming his spade into the sand with a naive intransigence. What are you doing, you idiot? When I said keep on digging, I was speaking metaphorically. I was using digging as an allegory for ploughing away at life, for keeping going in the face of adversity. What's metaphor? What's allegory? What's adversity? Bloody hell, was I really such an idiot? Oh, just keep digging. You'll get it one day. So yesterday I wrote about a lady called Pawnee, and today I am writing about a lady we encountered who was pretending to be a dog. I'm not sure whether this lady is also part of the woofer movement and pretends to be a dog to ingratiate herself with organic farmers. The dog lady was running around the festival sites, entertaining children. She would lie on the ground, roll over, allow people to tickle her tummy. Sean and I had to hold Michael back. Who finds that thing particularly kinky and highly arousing? All the while she would bark and howl. The dog lady's owner was a man on stilts, playing the bagpipes. The man would play and she would howl along and bark. As the bagpipes crescendoed to its ear-splitting finale, the dog lady would let out one final, long, loud howl whilst lying on her back and pissing into the air. It was a water pistol which she'd filled with water, which she had positioned between her legs. The pissing finale did nothing to pacify Michael's state of sexual arousal. We've been at the festival now for two days and we've seen this stilted bagpipe player and pissing howling dog lady around the place for most of that time i am fascinated to know what makes these people tick are they doing this for money or just because they really enjoy it if they're doing it for money do they work for an agency who haggles and touts on their behalf maybe this is much bigger business than i think they're not going out for any less than 500 pound uh well we can only really do 400 fine Fine, but you won't get the pissing for 400. Oh, no, no, we we must have the pissing. Well, she won't piss for any less than 500. What about 450? Well, okay, but she'll be howling much quieter than usual. If you want the full pissing and howling experience, it's 500 pounds. Take it or leave it. It's just a lot of money. We've not got a very big budget. We've been offered other pissing, howling dog acts for £300, so... Listen, my friend. This dog lady has barked, howled and pissed for celebrities. She barked, howled and pissed for Caricatola's housewarming party. So... You can go for a lesser-established pissing, barking, howling dog act if you want, or you can go for my client with all her years of experience in the field. It's up to you. It's a highly competitive industry, this, a pissing, howling dog lady world. But my client has risen to the top. Look, let me get some testimonials up for you. Proper good like. Kerry Katona. That's what she said. Oh, my God, innit? That pissing dog was well wicked, man. That was Dappy from n I've seen a lot of pissing howling dog acts in my time, but this one truly is the best. Piss be with you always. That's the Pope, a.k.a. God's representative on Earth. So technically, that's also an endorsement from God. Hang on. Did you say Dappy from n Okay, 500 it is. I wonder what's going on in the lady's head when she's on her sixth hour of pretending to be a dog, rolling around the floor, howling and pissing and barking. It will be fascinating to have access to her inner monologue whilst she's in the process of rolling on the ground, howling and barking. Is she thinking about what she's going to have for tea when she gets home? Is she having depressed thoughts as she wonders, where did it all go wrong? Does she think back to when she was young and had dreams of being a famous actress, and how her younger self would be absolutely appalled that she's ended up acting the part of a howling, pissing dog. Or perhaps she's always got a mind on the job, constantly thinking up ways in which she could improve her act. I think I might try pissing at more of an acute angle next time. I think that might look more impressive. And maybe just a, a little longer on the howl the next time. I'm also curious to know the relationship of the dog lady and the bagpipe-playing stiltwalker. Are they in a relationship, or just friends? Or maybe they're just colleagues, and they don't really talk and socialise out of work hours. If they're in a relationship, then I wonder whether they were together first, and then they decided one day to leave their jobs and set themselves up as a pissing dog stiltwalking, bagpipe-playing act. I mean, how does a conversation like that even happen? Oh, God... Here we go again. Another day at work. Same old, same old. God, I'm depressed, darling. Oh, I know. Me too. International diplomacy just isn't doing it for me anymore. Oh, if only there was a way of doing something together. Earning a living from doing something that we both love. Hang on a minute. Maybe there is. We've got some stilts. We've got some bagpipes. We've got a dog costume. We've got a water pistol. Why? Of course we have. Why didn't we think of this before? It's so obvious now. I'll call my work and tell them that I'm quitting. Me too. It's time to live our dreams. Or maybe they met through work. Maybe they were both appearing at the same festival and then they met and fell in love. She was rolling around on the ground and she looked up and saw him there on his stilts. She always did have a thing for men on stilts. And then she became seduced by his beautiful, sweet bagpipe playing. Meanwhile, he couldn't help himself but be drawn to the dog lady rolling around on the ground, letting howls out that stirred a passion deep within his loins. And then, when she pissed... He nearly toppled off his stilts in excitement. Now this was the kind of woman for him. He'd always had a thing for ladies who, dressed as a dog, rolled around howling and pissing, they were a perfect match. Although it was a bit awkward for them both when they first took their costumes off and actually talked to each other. If they are in a relationship, it'll be fascinating to hear their conversation just before and after their day's work. If they're having domestic problems, does it affect their act? Maybe she tries to trip him up by rolling into him and he deliberately plays her least favourite tunes on the bagpipes and maybe gives her a little kick when no one's looking. So, I've come all the way to Australia and of all the things that I could possibly tell you about, I've decided to write about a lady pretending to be a dog. I never claimed to be a travel writer. Well, that's our first Australian festival done. Our final gig was in front of 5,000 people and they gave us an amazing reception throughout and a standing ovation at the end the Australian audience does seem to be much more prone to applauding things that other audiences wouldn't our song A Lovely Cup of Tea about York's Islamic community's response to an English Defence League protest outside their mosque, inviting the protesters in for tea and biscuits and a game of football, took three times longer to sing than usual because they were applauding every single line when I got to the line we play football for Planet Earth United because that's how we all should be the entire audience erupted into rapturous applause that lasted for nearly minute. then again they also applauded our sound checks so i'm not really sure if i can be too big headed about their enthusiasm for my song although in fairness we did do a bloody good sound check my testing testing one two one two brought the house down the festival MCs have also been interesting and different to the MCs at English festivals. They spend about ten minutes with us before we go on stage, asking us loads of questions about who we are, where we come from, what we do. Some of them have also asked us to impart a funny story about something that has happened to us, so that they can talk about it in their introduction. This overzealousness doesn't really happen at British festivals. The MC usually just has a few facts gleaned from the band's biog and then they just do a quick introduction to announce you onto the stage. Or, oh, if the person knows you and they're a fan of what you do, then they will speak from the heart rather than just memorising facts. Often the MCs at the Australian Festival have spent that long garnering information from us and chatting to us, writing down things that they might want to talk about in their introduction, that they haven't had time to actually memorise any of it. This means that many of the MCs' introductions have consisted of them reading from some hastily written scrolls, unconvincingly trying to recount a mildly humorous tale which we've been forced to dredge up seconds before which has been feverishly transcribed into a hastily cobbled together shorthand that the MC then has to try and decipher and recall with conviction. So our introductions have been very interesting. It's also a bit awkward for us, as often we are stood on the stage at the microphones, ready to launch straight in, and we have to just stand there while the MC attempts to read for a piece of paper that contains a semi funny story that he's completely got confused and incongruously frantically written down just seconds earlier. I tried to help out by joking along with the MC on the microphone, hoping to spice up the intro a little bit, to make it seem a little less formal. But that didn't work, largely because the sound men hadn't actually turned on my microphone yet. The microphone level was, however, coming out of our monitors, so I could hear it and the MC could hear it, but the audience couldn't. This just caused the MC to confusingly halt his speech and then just continue when I'd finished a bit flummoxed. And of course, the audience had no idea what the heck was going on. Another odd thing that happened was that the MC invited us up onto the stage individually, calling out Sean first, who awkwardly stood there while the MC told the audience that he sang and wrote songs, and that he was a history graduate. The audience then gave Sean a round of applause, before Michael was invited to join Sean on the stage. The audience were then informed that Michael was also a singer, played guitar, and had recently been to New Zealand on holiday. The audience then applauded Michael, and then I was invited to join the other two on stage. I was then individually introduced to the audience, who were informed that I also sang and played the accordion and the piano, and then, oddly, they were told that I had been blind since nine months old due to cancer, which was something that he'd asked me just in conversation, though I had no idea that this would form a part of the introduction. I was then given a round of applause, which was louder than the applause that the other two received. I'd like to think that this was because the audience found me more attractive and interesting than the other two, but it was probably just out of sympathy after hearing the blind cancer story. And then we were eventually allowed to start. It'd be interesting to see whether this happens throughout all Australian festivals, or if it's just something specific to this particular festival. David's Daily Digital Dollop, Dollop 75. Have you heard the nose? Just because I'm at the other side of the world, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be blessed with amazing tales of adventure to impart every day. Unfortunately, the mundane and logistics are all still concepts that exist in Australia, and today has been a logistical one, essentially consisting of getting from A to B. Tell us more, David, please. At 4 a.m., I got out of bed, finished yesterday's dollop, recorded it, and then published it. At 6:30, we began our journey to Melbourne to take the hire car back to the airport and pick up another one for the next part of our trip. I'd planned to spend the car journey writing today's dollop, but given that I'd only just written a dollop a few hours earlier, I didn't feel as if I had anything new to write about. All that had happened since 10 p.m. last night, which is when I finished writing yesterday's dollop, was that I went to bed, woke up, tied up the written dollop, recorded it, uploaded it and then got in the car. My brain didn't feel at all alert and I'd had nothing to eat yet. Plus I'd hardly slept as I kept waking myself up by the sound of my nose, which was making some very odd noises. For some reason, rather than just blowing my nose and going back to sleep, I decided that it would be a good idea to record the peculiar sounds that my nose was generating, reasoning that I could include it in the audio dollop. Now that I am awake, the notion that people would want to listen to the sound of my nose, or anyone's nose for that matter, making a series of odd squeaking noises is an absurd one. But at one thirty in the morning, after only two hours of sleep, it seemed like a very good idea. So I got out of bed and stumbled around my room, a bit dazed and confused due to the dark and sleep deprivation. It took me a couple of minutes to remember where I'd put the digital recorder, yet this wasn't enough time for my brain to suddenly think, hang on a minute, you've got to be up early tomorrow, you've hardly had any sleep at all this week, and you're patently in need of it, as is has been clearly illustrated by the fact that you're now out of bed searching for a digital recorder in order to record the sound of your nose. Eventually I found the recorder and got back to bed to record the strange nasal sounds. Rather than quickly recording the noises, then blowing my nose and falling back asleep, I turned into a bit of a direct experimenting with different techniques to create different sounds. I played around with applying pressure to certain parts of my nose in order to change the airflow and thus alter the timbre. I was rather proud of my seagull impression until I realised that I was a 30 year old man recording himself trying to do animal impressions with his mucus filled nostrils, and that I then planned on sharing these noises with other people and that realisation took the edge off my achievements, somewhat. However, I've recorded it now, so I'll put it at the end of this dollop. I doubt that many of you will click on it. Well, you don't even have to. You just have to keep listening. So me. <laughs> Look at you. You don't even have to put any effort in. In fact, many of you might fall asleep listening to this. You might be a bit bored, fall asleep. The next thing you hear, weird, whimpering, whining sounds coming from my nose. That'll give you nightmares, Claire. This might turn out to be my biggest hit yet. Sometimes there is just no knowing, although in this case I think there probably is. But I'll keep an eye out on my web stats just in case this does turn out to be my most popular dollop yet. Perhaps this dollop will go viral, or maybe it's just my nose that will go viral due to my relentless prodding and poking as I try and emulate more and more different types of animals that my now millions of fans are requesting to hear. And I'd feel obliged to continue, despite my nasal virus Especially now that I've been asked to appear on the Children in Need TV programme and take part in a telethon whereby people donate money to hear me do impressions of different animals. I don't have it in my heart to say no when I do have it in my nose to say yes and save lives the fate of so many disabled children rest upon these shoulders or more accurately, this nose I desperately need some medical intervention to stop my nose from eventually falling off, but ironically, I can't afford the treatment because I'm spending all my time and energy saving lives for free and when I do get a couple of hours to rest, I just don't have the energy to do any more nose noises in order to raise funds for my much needed treatment, but then one day, my career ends in in an epic fashion. I am asked to perform for the Queen. There is much head-scratching, because I am not at all a monarchist and don't want to be seen as supporting a system which I see as a pointless totem of inequality and injustice, but also because one of the side effects of my virus is a ridiculously itchy head. In the end, I decided to accept the offer as it would provide me with enough money to fund my medical treatment. Before I actually get to meet the Queen, I have to listen to a lecture from a member of palace staff who tells me about the proper protocol for my discourse. With her. Oh dear, maybe part of the virus. I mean, it's affecting the throat as well. Apparently, this is a thing that always happens before you are allowed to meet the Queen. According to a few people that I know who've been to Buckingham Palace, charity workers who have seen some of the most harrowing things, helped refugees, orphans and disabled children, heroes of World War II, pioneering scientists whose work has saved countless lives, all have to receive a lecture about proper protocol for addressing the Queen. What an absolute insult, as if any of it matters. The only reason that the Queen isn't an orphan or a refugee child is purely because of chance. She happened to pop out of the right hall at the right time whereas the people she's meeting have popped out of a much less lucrative hall and yet succeeded in doing remarkable things that provide value and benefit to others. Yet it is they who get patronised by a lecture telling them how to bow properly and that you have to say "ma'am" as in jam, not mom as in arm, which apparently is one of the pointless points of the lecture. You also get told that you have to call her your majesty the first time you address But after that, you are okay just to call her ma'am. But don't you dare say ma'am as in arm. Have you got that, peasants? I'm afraid there's a problem. This man refuses to bow. He is therefore not permitted to meet our gracious queen. But he's Professor Stephen Hawking, One of our planet's leading thinkers and scientists. Yes, but that's hardly the point, is it? He won't bow. Well, he can't bow. He's paralyzed. And he won't say, ma'am, as in jam. He keeps saying ma'am, as in arm. The sheer impertinence. Well, that's hardly fair. It's hardly his fault, is it? He's using a speech synthesizer. Look, he's clearly a flagrant anti-monarchist. He's refused to bow, he uses the wrong phonemes to refer to the Queen, and what's more, he's clearly never stood up and sang the national anthem. People like him make me sick. It was me, however, who was responsible for making the Queen sick, for at the moment that I met the Queen, I did something that I hadn't allowed myself to do for 20 years, since I discovered my nasal-based talent. It's important to keep the nose full of mucus in order to get the best performance. I've been vigilant about keeping the precious mucus inside my nose. I have therefore not blown my nose for 20 years and have taken to wearing a clothes peg fixed to my nose when I am not performing. However, I was told that I couldn't wear a peg on my nose to meet the Queen, and so I was forced to take it off. But my nose wasn't used to not having the peg on it for so long, and in my efforts to concentrate on saying the right thing to Her Majesty, I let my guard down. This is why, when I met the Queen, I sneezed all over her, drenching her in twenty years of mucus. Then, to make matters even worse, when the Queen had wiped the snot out of her eyes, she saw my dismembered nose lying on the floor. The virus had finally taken taken its toll. This caused the Queen to throw up, creating even more mess. Of course, many people saw this as a deliberate act of dissent. There was mass protests calling for me to be tried for treason. The term sneeze in treason became ubiquitous, being frequently used by broadcasters and journalists. People in the government were voicing their opinion that my motives needed to be investigated, leading to "sneezegate" becoming the most commonly used word in the media that year. The sneeze also acted as a rallying cry for an anti-monarchist movement and there were calls for a revolution starting with the overthrowing of the monarchy david cameron was livid and did a youtube video wearing one of his finest suits and ties in order to condemn me and my ilk russell brand set up a new youtube channel called the Act choose quoted some spiritual philosophers used some big words and called for revolution Sadly, as much as I'm sure that you'd love to hear more of this story, I have to go now, as we've arrived at our destination. However, don't despair, because I'll leave you with a minute of edited highlights from my nasal noises recording. I think you might also enjoy this, Chloe, because you can hear me breathing directly into the microphone. Enjoy. (laughs)